Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics without the boring bits. Don't forget, you can listen live weekdays from 10 on Times Radio. Just retune your DAB radio, download the Times Radio app, or ask your smart speaker to play Times Radio. Coming up on today's episode, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I've been speaking to David Halpern, who set up the government's nudge unit using behavioural science to get us to change the way that we behave. I last spoke to him back in, I think, February 2020, just the early stages of the pandemic were taking hold, to discuss the role of nudging, you know, how posters can be redesigned to get us to wash our hands, different ways of trying to get people to keep their distance and so on. So I caught up with him about that, the evidence he was giving to the COVID inquiry and the future of nudging to make us all a bit healthier. So that's coming up and I'll be a really, really, really fascinating interview with him. Before that, though, it's time for these two. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. And we say hello to Manveen Rana. Hello, Manveen. Hello. And we say hello to Matthew Paris. Good morning. Hello. Now, Matthew and I are both very concerned because Manveen's yes. not with us. Yes. I know. Which is I'm fine. So sorry. You know, we can I'm live so with that. Sorry. But it means we haven't got Donuts. There are, we haven't got there the are cakes. No snacks. There are no snacks. I'm so sorry. I planned mince pies this week. Oh. Um but sadly I couldn't I couldn't be there. I'm so sorry. Next next time. You've, you've ruined Christmas. You've ruined Christmas. Um, <laughs> I'll make up for it, I promise. Good, good, good. But anyway, it's nice that you're here. It's nice that you're here. Um, so I want to talk about uh, Rishi Sunak's thin skin. Uh, and is it a problem? Uh, in an interview with The Spectator today, he has said, the Prime Minister said, there was nothing tetchy about him. Uh, unfortunately, the piece doesn't fully relate how tetchy he was when being asked, was he tetchy? <laughs> Uh, he said, there's nothing tetchy, but I am passionate. When things are not working the way I want to work, of course I'm going to be frustrated. And it was one of the sort of the themes I thought that came out of PMQs yesterday. Keir Starmer, actually, it was more artful than Keir Starmer is normally. He sort of did a joke and then a sort of sad story and then a question and it sort of seemed to wrong foot uh, Keir, uh, Rishi Sunak a bit. Here's when uh, Keir Starmer, um, he'd, he'd done a couple of jokes already and sort of wound Rishi Sunak up. Then he sort of segued into... Uh, a sort of slightly sadder story about homelessness, which then I just thought Rishi Sunak, well, let, let, let's listen to it, then I'll see what, how, how you think he dealt with it. Or 11-year-old Liam Walker, homeless this Christmas. He wrote a letter to Santa saying, please, can I have a forever home? I don't want any new toys. I just want all my old toys out of storage. I just want us 
to be happy again. Is there anything that could shame this government into putting the country first? Then it's surely this little boy. Mr Speaker, if you really care about building homes... No, 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 no. No, no, no. If you really care about building homes, when, when there was an opportunity in this house, Mr Speaker, in this house to back our plans to reform defective EU laws, to unlock 100,000 new homes, Mr Speaker. What did he do? What did he do? He went in front of the cameras and said one thing and came in here and blocked it. Typical, shameless opportunism. What did you make of that, Matthew? I'm absolutely with Rishi Sunak <laughs> on this. Absolutely with... I cannot bear people who come into the chamber of the House of Commons with sob stories of, of one kind or another. You can never check them out anyway. And everybody has their limits. R- Rishi Sunak genuinely is not a tetchy person, but I think he's just been pushed to near breaking point recently, and so would I be. What did you think, Matt um, I thought that was sort of probably normal cut and thrust of parliamentary debate. I wasn't so fussed about that. But I do think Rishi Sunak is quite tetchy because you get it at odd moments. So, you know, there have been sort of press conferences where very suddenly he just sort of slightly he snaps, he loses it. And he's just annoyed that he's even being asked questions about his policies, um, which I think is, is it's not a good look. You always sort of think, well, it's kind of your democratic duty to answer some of these questions. And he always just seems sort of slightly annoyed that somebody's questioning his his great handling of, of um, whatever crisis it is. And then, uh, you know, I, I had to spend far too much of my life over the last week watching the COVID inquiry. And I thought it was really interesting watching Boris Johnson, who, you know, in the past has gone into inquiries and sort of, you know, he almost bullies people asking him questions. He likes to sort of shout them down and be very defensive. And I think he'd been very, he'd been coached very well. So he was clearly sort of sitting on his hands a lot of the time and and being as careful as he could be and trying to sound patient and like he'd, um, you know, he'd thought everything through and had been very calm. Um, and Rishi Sunak, well, you know, was, was very technical and yep. very straight, but... There were just a few moments where, when he was pushed and he would just sort of, he would snap and be very tetchy. There was stuff around eat out to help out where he, he basically implied he shouldn't really be asked questions about this by the inquiry, which was the, the you know, sort of the, the line of defence which is most likely to offend not only the case he was questioning him, but the person heading the inquiry too. Um, and it just, he just sort of slightly loses it. He doesn't have the charm to be able to carry off, um, you know, to, to be able to cope with criticism well. Exactly. And charm is a quality that wicked people possess. I mean, <laughs> Boris Johnson isn't, isn't tetchy or petulant because he really doesn't care about anything very much. <laughs> he can be, nice, he can be quite Nice people often snap. Now, nice people do get a bit tetchy and it's because they're trying to be nice. <laughs> I, I, a, I just thought he could have tried a bit harder. In, 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 in <laughs> uh, Matthew, it's been a while since you were a Tory MP. If you were a Tory MP, prepared, I mean, they, are, they are supposed to be there next week, but I think it's very much a one-line whip after the shenanigans of this week. What, what moods do you think Tory MPs would, would be in heading off for Christmas? I, I really think that it's futile to try to, to, to uh, deconstruct the mental processes of members of the present Conservative Party. They must see that what they're doing, they're all going to hang together. Um, they must see where this is taking them. And I, I simply can't understand how the, the, the idea that they, they might just shut up 
for a while and say nice things about each other might actually help them. Even self-interest appears now, and self-interest is the almost the, the last, the, the, the core attribute of a, a, any, any politician, the last thing to go, but self-interest has gone now amongst them. What do you think, Mavi? Oh, I think it must be a very depressing time to be a Tory MP. Um, you know, they've, they've just about managed to get through this week, but they all know they're coming back in January for yet another massive battle over Rwanda. Um, there's clearly a faction who, you know, found during Brexit that they sort of had a purpose and they kind of miss yes. that, I think. You know, like, like the Marc Francois, they love being able to stand up and look like they have a purpose and sound sort of very self-righteous. And, you know, they found that again with Rwanda. They're not going to make this any easier. Um, and if Rishi Sunak does anything to accommodate them, he's going to alienate the rest of the party. So, you know, January is going to be very difficult. Um, already this morning, as a little sort of Merry Christmas present, I guess, we've been told that there might be another by-election in Blackpool South because the standards watchdog has sort of found found that the MP there has recommended a 35-day ban. So it's just it's just one thing after the other at the moment for the Tories, I think, and it, I, I can't imagine any of them look forward to 2024 with any particular joy. Why is Brexit getting all sort of muddled up now with Rwanda? It's, it, it, just it's weird. it's the same people, I think. <laughs> I think it it's is the, the same people. And yeah. I think exactly as Manveen says that they've been out of the limelight for a while and they've seen the opportunity to come back. I didn't know Bill Cash was still alive, let alone still a, a member of Parliament. He's very he highly of you as well, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you're right, but it's the same people trying you know, yeah. try to recreate you know, the, the, the game from yesterday lunchtime at school. That's what it's the same people like. and the same sort of grandiosity. So, you know, they've they formed a star chamber now, which sort of sounds terribly grand and you yes. can tell Bill Cash is having the time of his life. Um, yeah, and I think that's sort of the problem because I don't know how you take that away from them. Because they're all, they're all back on the telly and enjoying themselves. Yes. <laughs> well, let's speak about one Tory MP that we can all be pleased about. David Davis, uh, former cabinet minister, uh, who was out for dinner this week. Mm. And as he left the restaurant, he came across, there were two blokes beating up a homeless man. And he intervened, broke up the fight, took the guy home, let him sleep on his sofa. And then when he's, he, his head wound was still bleeding, he, he took him to hospital the next day. Um, it's, it turns out that there are, there are good in politicians, Matthew. Well, I, I really like David Davies. He's, he's, he's a good man. And what, what, one, of the, one of the few really uh, good people that you see in, in, in politics these days, that he can be a bit eccentric. But just as a journalist, I'm slightly interested in the, how this story... How did it get into the newspapers? <laughs> I know exactly how it got into the papers because yeah. I spoke to David Davis last night so yes. he didn't want to do any interviews about it. He was out for dinner with Guito Harry, yeah. uh, uh, former spin doctor for Boris Johnson and once a spin doctor, always a spin doctor. And in fact, I think Guito's coming on just after midday to, to give us his side of the story. But my <laughs> understanding is it reached the papers by the conduit of David Davis's dinner guest rather than the man himself. I see, yes, yeah. yes. Which is... Uh, and a- how, how did he actually fend off uh, two presumably quite young thugs. He's, I know he was once in the SAS and can <laughs> strangle a chicken or whatever it is that they, <laughs> the they do. But, I mean, he's, I guess he's in his 50s now, maybe 60s. I think he might be in his 60s. And he, yes. Uh, 70s, I, th- I think. I think they were... Um, uh, one of... He's 74? 74, 74, 74. yes. Um, uh, I think he... One of them was slightly more enthusiastic about the fight than the other one. So he... Uh, yeah, but I think he did sort of square up to them. I think he said you had to 
uh, be intimidating and not be intimidated. And that was how he, um, how he did. But Matt, we've been talking about Have A Go Hero stories. And Matthew Powis has got his own Have A Go Hero story, for which you received a medal, didn't you? Yes, from the RSPCA. It was a dog. <laughs> it was a dog. You uh, saved yeah, a dog. Yeah, it was drowning. Yeah. Um, it was winter. Yeah. The Thames was high. It was high tide. The waves were high. The little boy and girl who owned the dog were weeping by the side of the river. It, they'd just taken their dog out for a walk before bed after television. It was about nine, half past nine at night. And uh, Well, I was born and brought up in, in Africa, Matt, and I had no idea how cold an English river is in winter, so I just threw off my clothes and jumped in and nearly drowned. But I, I did, did fetch the dog... And uh, you may ask, um, no doubt will, yes. how that story got into the newspapers. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the little boy and girl told their mother uh. and their mother got in touch with uh, the RSPCA and the RSPCA got in touch with Mrs Thatcher. Mm. She called me in. She said, why did you do that? It was, it was only a dog. You should have let it drown. <laughs> and, <laughs> she then said, but the, the RSPCA have asked me to present you with a, an award for bravery, so naturally I'll, I'll be doing it. And, and the dog tried to mate with her leg. That's the last thing. <laughs> while, the, while the award was being presented. Could that story have anything else? <laughs> wow. Sorry, David Davis. Uh, you are now the second uh, best have-a-go hero. Um, uh, Man could you uh, could you match that? No, God, I've never done anything quite so brave or so mad. And, and it certainly didn't result in, in a dog attaching itself to Margaret Thatcher's leg. That's a great story. They're very hard yeah. to stop, those little dogs, once they get an idea yeah, into yeah, their head. They're, they're, Yeah, a bucket of cold water is what, <laughs> what is necessary. Um, well, while we're on a, um, extraordinary uh, political uh, headlines, uh, th- this story, is, I, just think, I just feel, needs, needs to be recorded. A Labour councillor in Scotland has withdrawn from the race to become an MP amid concerns about the lurid nature of his, quotes, sexy and satanic novels. Uh, Alton Craig is a uh, veteran councillor in Fife. He was hoping to stand against uh, the SNP and become the member for Glen, uh, Glen Rothis at the general election uh, next year. But he's, they say he's withdrawn for voluntary family reasons, although friends are saying it's because of his saucy books. Do you think writing saucy books should be grounds for not being an MP, Mavi? Um, I mean, no, of course not. Uh, and writing bad books shouldn't be grounds for not being an MP either. Fact, it, it, it seems Nadine to be required. Doris. It's required. It's required. Um, I, I can sort of see why they would have been uncomfortable about them, though, because, you know, if you sort of think of Labour in that part of the world, you know, Fife, this is sort of Gordon Brown territory, the son of the manse and the real sense of being very principled and... Um, all of that. And then you sort of suddenly have a person standing to be an MP who is best known for novels that sort of depict very graphic descriptions of, I think they're satanic and yeah. sexual there's a, there's a child. There's a child sacrifice in one of them carried oh. out by a vampire. I'm reading... I mean, that, I think that would make me worry a little bit about my MP no. and about where their mind is most of the time. <laughs> I'm reading... And I also... <laughs> Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I, I loved I loved some of the reviews of these books, where it sort of says, um, it, it, this, this book contains very graphic descriptions of um, uh, rape, mutilation and gore, but apart from that, it was a pretty good read. 
Unfoul language. Unfoul um, language. That Beginning past that, it's a worthwhile he, read. He's not wrong to want to be an MP, but he should be a Tory MP. That's, I mean, that, that, <laughs> it's, a, it's a positive recommendation. <laughs> but maybe, maybe he can see which way the wind is blowing. And, uh, that particular part of Fife. It might be better elsewhere. I, I was on uh, something called the Broadcasting Standards Council many years ago. We dealt with complaints uh, about about radio and television. And whenever anything to do with the occult comes up, um, it's it's always convinced Christians who are very upset by it. And I guess the conclusion to draw is that those people who who believe in a a good and loving God uh, are, are likely also to to believe in a, an evil and scheming and wicked devil but christians seem to believe yeah. in the occult uh, you and i are well i don't know if you're a christian or not but we don't believe in the occult do we matt well, so i sort of don't believe in anything no no so <laughs> so, so as i I, I, I find the idea of <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> it's why i'm you know i'm not interested in films about about vampires any more than i am no. in, you know reading the no, bible because there aren't any vampires no that's the point no but I think I think I would worry about my MP if they if they were constantly writing about that stuff because I just think they're a bit batty. Um, you know, you, you, oh, yes. you sort of question their judgment a bit. <laughs> they're all batty. <laughs> there is also know, the fact that I he's, that's he's, a prerequisite. He's a long-standing <laughs> Labour councillor. At some point, he's cleared the bar for that. Yeah, but presumably because there's more, there will be more attention <laughs> on every Labour candidate uh, going into the election. And now, you know, some of those SNP seats are, um, are up for grabs. Uh, but my favourite bit is that uh, one friend. Uh, of him, um, uh, I've got, forgot, forgot the guy's name. What's his name? Craig. Uh, Alton Craig. That's right. Uh, one friend of Craig told the Courier in Dundee, "It's absolutely disgusting. They're saying he's not a suitable candidate because his books are too sexy and satanic." <laughs> just think, what a, that's the sort of friends you want to be speaking to newspapers. That is uh, absolutely superb. You can read that um, online as uh, at the Times.co.uk as part of the Scotland uh, section. Up next, uh, we are going to turn on. Our Christmas, we're turning on Christmas here on Times Radio. Uh, I might as well say this now, Joe Pasquale is pulled out. Uh, so if anyone oh, wants to leave, then please, now's the time to go full Alan Partridge. Uh, Joe Pasquale has pulled out. We're going to try and find another minor celebrity to turn on Christmas. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio, joined by Manveen Rana Matthew Paris. We're about to turn on Christmas. So you must have turned on some Christmas lights, Matthew. No, I've crowned a few beauty queens, but I've never turned on <laughs> Christmas lights. <laughs> was that when you were an MP? Yes, yeah, yes, you, MP. yes you do that kind you of thing. Manvi never turned that on any... That sounds very David Davis. <laughs> have, you <ever> t- <laughs> have you ever turned on Christmas, Manvi? Uh, no, apart from in my own living room. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an gets. important thing. So basically, uh, obviously, you know, it's what there's a December the 14th today. Uh, there's a moment to turn on the Times Radio Christmas jingles. Uh, and that moment is coming in, what, four minutes' time. Now, we had uh, thought, you know, we need, a, we need a celebrity. We need a celebrity to turn on our Christmas lights. Uh, until about half an hour ago, that celebrity was going to be Joe Pasquale. Uh, um, but uh, he's pulled out. Uh, Joe Pascal to save his voice, his famous, famous, famous voice. But instead, I think this is an upgrade, if anything. Uh, we are joined by Will Meller. Morning, Will. Good morning. Um, Will, <laughs> have you ever been the replacement for Joe Pasquale before? There we are! There we are! We don't need him. We've got we've got double. We've got double. <laughs> 
There you go. No, I've never, I've never been a replacement for Joe Pasquale. I don't know how, I, I don't know how I feel that he's pulled out and I've been stuck in. But I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're, we're very happy to have you, Will. And you're not in Panto, but you are going to be treading the boards. You're taking your podcast on tour. Yes, uh, the tickets um, go on sale tomorrow uh, on twopintspodcast.com. If you go there, get your tickets. We did a tour last year and it sold out. It was a really good evening, uh, loads of fun, uh, entertainment, all audience participation. So, yeah, it's, it goes on tour. The tickets go on sale tomorrow. We're on tour next next April. It's called the April Fools Tour. And it's you, so it's you and Ralph Little. It's the Two Pints podcast you should be doing uh, for quite a while now, haven't you? Four seasons, yeah, yeah. We've had about 75, 80 million downloads, uh, which we're very grateful of. So we set it up in lockdown. Uh, it's like two blokes sat having a beer at the pub talking about anything and everything and uh, yeah it's a bit of fun uh, but we go through all sorts of subjects and yeah it's been we're on our fourth season it just came out last week our fourth series first podcast came out last week and when you do it live on stage and there's does that then become the podcast well yes and no really it's more <laughs> of, well because we film it and we record it but it's more about we want to just do things a bit differently yeah. on stage. We play more games, getting people on stage. We get the audience members to send in their questions and their stories. And so it's a real fun night out um, and a few surprises and a few guests here and there sometimes. Paddy McGuinness came on stage with us at one point last year. But it's just really good to get out there and say thank you for the support. Nice. But also, for people to have a night out and a bit of fun. So what's the web address again? It's uh, twopintspodcast.com. Go there and you can watch our latest podcast on YouTube, listen to it, or buy your tickets for the tour and merchandise and all sorts on there. Very good, very good. Have you turned on Christmas lights before, Will? I think I've done it in my local town of Stockport a very long good. time ago when I was in Hollyoaks, um, oh, when Holly I grew Oaks. up there. But I've, I've, I did one in Chester when I was in Hollyoaks with the Hollyoaks cast. But uh, I, I have done a few up and down the country over the years, but this year I didn't do any, so I'm privileged to be here. Here we are then. Here we go. So... Uh, we could all join it, but we'll we'll kick us off with the uh, with the countdown. Manvi Rana, Matthew Paris, will start the countdown from ten before we turn on Christmas. Okay, here we go. Ten, nine, nine eight, 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 seven, 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 seven six, 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 five, 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 five four, five, four. <laughs> oh my God, we've exposed three, the delay on Zoom. Two, <laughs> one. <laughs> Manveen Rana and Matthew Paris. Of course, you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast wherever you're listening to this and read Matthew in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, we're going nudging with David Halpern. You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. On the front page of today's Times, hundreds more middle-aged adults have been dying each month since the end of the pandemic as smoking, obesity and NHS backlogs drive a rise in excess deaths. But as the COVID inquiry closes for the year, what are some of the big picture conclusions that we can draw from it? And are there new health ideas that can be used in public health to stop more people dying. I've been speaking to Professor David Halpern, the founding director and current president of the Behavioural Insights Team, also known as the Nudge Unit. 
It was set up as part of the Cabinet Office by David Cameron back in 2010. It was then spun off as a standalone business. The team uses behavioural science to help ministers to better understand how the public think and act. And all of that then informs government policy. You may have seen David recently giving evidence to the COVID inquiry. He was one of the people in the room at the early stages of the pandemic as waves of the virus hit in Asia and continental Europe before the first lockdown came in March 2020. I actually spoke to him in early 2020 about his role in using nudge theory to get people to do what they needed to do. So I caught up with him and asked him what was his role at that point. Oh my God, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? We've been drawn in, and I personally have been asked to by Matt Hancock to try and help the department by mid to late February 2020, which remember things were just starting to kick off. And there was a realization in the department that a lot of what was going to happen on COVID involved human behavior. We now might take that for granted. They were worried, for example, that there might be panics, or that, of course, there might be no response at all. Both those would be a potentially concern. So in those very early days, there was work around which you saw the public face of getting people to wash their hands. It is still the case that the single most useful thing that we can all do to support our NHS to stop the spread of uh, coronavirus is to wash our hands. Two times happy birthday, hot water and, and soap. So we did design of those early posters, which we still have somewhere even around this building. Those ones of, you know, wash your hands for 20 seconds, right? That went through multiple iterations within less a week to improve comprehension, make them work, make them cut through. So if you like a 101 application, which there will, of course, be far more to follow about when you got testing. Can anybody remember where they were last week? Would they comply if you asked them to? These are all behavioral issues. And later on, even when you got a vaccine, as a vaccine is not a vaccination, Matt, until you turn up and say, hey, will you jam the thing in my arm? And then, you know, only at that point, it actually is contingent on human behavior. So, yes, back in the midst of time, that was those very, very early recognitions of, you know, it would be behavioral, which has waxed and waned in all kinds of complicated ways in the two years that followed. And what have you learned about the complicated thing we call human beings, particularly British human beings, because obviously, you know, there are cultural differences between countries. And so, on. so particularly looking at the UK that you thought was the case back in early 2020, which it turns out wasn't the case. Or have you learned new things about the way the public react to government messaging? Well, I think we've learned a lot about how governments do or don't go about trying to do this well, but may leave that hanging for a minute. Um, I mean, in general, I think it reinforced, interestingly, that for the most part, the public did the right thing, wanted to do the right thing. Um, and even in the face of bad behavior in government, what really mattered was what your fellow citizen was doing. In the behavioral literature, that's known as so-called declarative social norms. Not what you say you're doing, it's what you see other people doing that really matters as a, a very powerful force in influencing our behavior. And so actually one of the, you know, one of the phrases which has been banded around a lot and again uh, during the, the inquiries have been unfolding is behavioral fatigue, lockdown fatigue would set in. And actually that didn't turn out to be the case. In fact, it turns out, even looking at the polling there, public seemed quite enthusiastic about lockdown, wanted to... You know, the more locked down, the better the polls showed. You know, obviously there were other people who took a different view, but it seemed to be the majority of you. Were you surprised by that? It sounds like you were less concerned about lockdown fatigue and actually you thought that people would would join in more readily. So two words, of course, so much pain to behavioural scientists that in Britain, <laughs> behavioural fatigue. So we were relatively upbeat, not least because, you know, the wider literature suggests that people 
with respect to quarantining were really good at it. They would stick at it as long as there was a clear reason, particularly individual or small group level would persist over time. So we were reasonably confident about that. That phrase, when it came out, it wasn't from us, of course. Chris Whitty has talked about it, and he's described it as his biggest communication mistake, as you probably know. This is one where my communications were uh, really poor, frankly. And uh, I said in my statement, this is probably my most uh, prominent, at least in my view, uh, communications error. It was quite misleading, I think, and unhelpful, and also to have implied that that was a reason for delay. We even double-checked it after he started using the phrase, going back to the literature on the, the Spanish flu. And like even in 1918-19 in US cities, we found that there was very high levels of compliance. And you'd only start to see it breaking down by the time you get to a sort of third lockdown in a context where it was really hot and there was no TV and there was no Matt Chorley to listen to on a radio. In fact, there wasn't a radio and most people couldn't even read. And yet you still got incredibly high levels of compliance until sort of third lockdown. So that all reinforced for us that people really would stick at it. That's not to say that it's not a difficult thing to do, but you know, you, you do do things that are difficult, like you're going for a run or go to the gym. You become tired, but you still persist at it. The last thing I just say is that it, one of the things that has evolved from it is much, much more sophisticated segmentation. So not everyone's the same. You know, a 65-year-old a who's got a medical condition who's really worried is not in the same situation than a 21-year-old man who thinks they'll live forever. Young people who are less directly at risk, you did see a bigger decay in their behavior. And we did some quite detailed work as COVID went on around what we sometimes call super spreader, behavioral super spreaders, which we estimate to be about 8% of the population, who are generally people who are much lower at risk. They weren't worried about it, but were also in high contact with others. So they were a particularly tricky group to, as it were, keep our collective eye on with respect to some of these issues, including what you might call fatigue. Is it because I know this came up when Boris Johnson was giving evidence, and there've been others as well. To suddenly to say that uh, we were going to relax the, the the rules on social distancing for uh, for for kids, for young people, would have been a, a very very peculiar signal to send out at the very moment when we were trying to get, uh, we were desperately trying to get the existing measures to work, and we were on the point of of toughening them up. Do you think there was a different path then, where you could have carved up the nation to have said to older people those with medical conditions you need to essentially lock down or limit your contact with other people but actually younger people and especially children in schools could have carried on doing what they would normally do was it possible that you you could have communicated that or actually did it have to be stay at home or not stay at home for everyone well look it's quite a complicated question it's as much a modeling question as anything Mm. matt as you may know i actually after that interview very early on with Mark Easton and also with you, I did get a, a bit of a, I don't like to say this word, but a, the hairdryer treatment, let's say, from colleagues on the comm side of number 10. And one of their real concerns actually wasn't to do with the notorious herd immunity. It was to do with, I'd use the phrase cocooning, that older people would need to cocoon. There's going to be a point, assuming the epidemic flows and grows as we think it probably will do, um, where you want to cocoon. You want to protect those at-risk groups um, so that they basically don't catch the disease. And by the time they you know, come out of their cocooning, um, herd immunity has been achieved in the rest of the population. Because even at that very early stage, the age-adjusted fatality rate was so massive, at least 5,000-fold, it just screamed out at you, we were all going to need to protect the most vulnerable. And hence, mm. I'd use this phrase, cocooning, which is used in the literature. To some extent, you know, people did self-select themselves. So, you know, it did follow from it. You have some differentiation and could we get back? 
behind that even more strongly, possibly. But I suppose that's part of part of the lessons that might be learned from this. Um, in quite, you mentioned getting the hair drying uh, treatment from the number 10 communications team was that sort of lee kane dominic cummings was that you were getting that from <laughs> it actually, actually was mainly jack to be honest i remember jack door jack door from uh yes. from number 10. so um, give us your sense then everyone everyone's lifted the lid on their contact and understanding of what was going on in number 10 was it this sort of frat boy party uh which we get portrayed in the sort of whatsapp groups of dominic cummings i think i was reflecting a widespread view uh amongst uh competent people at the center of power at the time about the caliber of a lot of senior people who were dealing with this crisis extremely badly was it the most boring business-like academic work environment which rishi sunak tried to to represent was it a reasonable approach at the time i i think so and it was extensively debated so in terms of thinking about the decision-making process, even if the decision might be one that, in hindsight, people would revisit. I don't think there was any failure in the process because it was extensively debated in government. What was your understanding of of that that setup? Well, so I should premise it by I actually spend most of the time more engaged in the Department of Health, yeah. where I was based. But certainly in the earlier months when I was there, at least at some point, I mean, Dominic Cummings really understood very on the, the seriousness of what it was. Um, and driving it forward. I mean, I can remember being sat in the, the pillardrome in Downing Street, and there was discussions about could people get trained, you know, literally to work ventilators because of what would have to happen. And being told by Patrick and Chris, actually, it's really complicated, even for someone who's a medic. Like, actually, we're not going to have the average volunteer from Number Ten being able to do this. But well, I partly mention it because I think there was at least in some quarters a realization of the seriousness of what was to unfold. I'm afraid I didn't get to invite it to any of the parties, so I can't talk on that end of the frivolity. But it was—it is also true. I mean, Number Ten, as you'll know, is a very small in operation actually, and it did take a while for the centre to build up a proper what later became the Cabinet Office Task Force. But it wasn't a big team fundamentally. So, and that, I mean, and that's yeah. been a criticism of of the way you know Number Ten as a as an operation as an office. Although it's at the very top of the tree, it's quite a small bit at the top of the tree. You've you've you know you worked in the the Blair government, then you were you know you were around with the Cameron government, and so on. I just wondered how you felt it compared to previous. Is it is it the nature of the way that we've been running the country for a generation that it just wasn't equipped for what came along, or was there something particular about that that team and that group of people? Well, it's probably a combination. As you say, I have actually worked in a, quite a number of number 10s and they've changed over time. Many prime ministers have often been frustrated with uh, number 10 that they found. It's a, it's, it's relatively small, a centre of government compared to many other centres of government, actually. And it's gone through, you know, various kinds of convulsions over time. So, you know, it'd be nice to see a slightly more settled centre. And even with the turnover of people. So, as you'll know, Matt, there's been extraordinary change of administrations inside this administration and one of the things that is very striking to see is you get a total clearing out of most of the people in number 10 on all the policy side each time you've got a new prime minister and it's like well that's mad don't you want to keep more of those people just to have the institutional memory and so british government seems not very good at that it's not very good at retaining the institutional memory because of the turnover just before we move off of COVID, what are the standout moments of your evidence of the inquiry? Was a note that you were passing with uh, data scientist Ben Warner. You wrote, we are not ready. And he crossed out the words not ready. So it said, we are um, Yes. Tell, take us to that moment. What was the moment that you you thought wasn't ready and that, that Ben thought the country or your, your team were, were to use the word? Yeah, well, partly because of my not very good memory, I tend to keep notes in a notepad like this. 
So I was writing in my notepad what was going on in the various discussions. The meeting discussed and of course picked up the inquiry was a sage meeting in mid-March. And we just had a series of things which were each really, I think, of grave concern. And then there was a very particular discussion, which I found very striking, others might not. But there was a challenge that went back to the model, as I'll, I'll spare the particular individuals, which was, you know, really questioning, are you, are you sure it's not worth doing some of these lockdown things because of it's happening in Asia? What will happen afterwards? And the modelers came back very clearly about, no, because what happens is as soon as you let the lockdown end, you'll get this massive spike back up. And they were pressed on it. And they used this phrase of saying, 100% sure, 100% sure. Well, I used to teach stats at Cambridge. You know, it's like, you never say 100%. Like, even if you're, you're really sure, you say 99%. You know, it's like, it's got to be an error bar and everything. And anyway, a series of these things just, I think, in my my sense of that moment was like, we are literally, so I wrote in capital, we are not ready. We are not ready for what is going to come. And hence, Ben leant across and in more dramatic terms, just clearly felt the same. It was, to me, one of those points where I felt like the penny was dropping on a number of issues about some assumptions and that policy had to had to change its position and it was overconfident on on the science side too just going back to the autumn where we obviously knew more about what was going on yeah. and and the decisions were being made where were you on the debate about eat out to help out obviously rishi sunak's been asked a lot of questions about that my primary concern was protecting millions of jobs of particularly vulnerable people who worked in this industry from a behavioural point of view, if you're yeah. simultaneously trying to say, yes, you, you know, we're lifting lockdown, but you need to be careful. But also the message that Eat Out to Help Out had, although there was an economic argument for it, which is obviously if you're the Chancellor, you're thinking about the economy. So w- what was your perception then and now about the effect of Eat Out to Help Out? So I don't think we were asked specifically on the scheme. As you know, it was sort of kind of emerged pretty rapidly. We had done work on this issue and we do have a view which there was a sort of third way possible. So we actually ran a trial, which is to to work out what would increase people's confidence, but also might still be so-called COVID secure. And so to explain a little bit, Matt, how a lot, one of the ways are working is we'd run online trials with maybe a few thousand people. In this case, where they're shown a sort of series, hey, would you be interested in going to this restaurant or eating out or whatever it would be? And then what happens is different subjects, some of them get, oh, and if you've got a 10 pound you know, voucher or if you've got, but one of the variations we made is that you'd see a picture of the, of the restaurant. And in, in some cases, the wait staff would be wearing masks and some case they would not. And some cases there would be a clear set of the COVID rules and some would not to working out the relative effect sizes. Well, offering to pay people a little bit made them more likely to say they would go. But what made much, much more difference is if you could see that the restaurant looked like it was COVID secure. In other words, right, the, the waiters were wearing masks and they said, we're going to make you blah, blah, blah. That was much bigger effect, like 20 points. So our view on the way forward in principle was you want to have a much stronger differentiation. So a bit like TripAdvisor type thing. You could see that this restaurant was COVID secure. And then if you were meeting your mum, it's like, well, I'm definitely I'm going to go to that one. And it's, it's going to cost a bit more because people are further apart. But I know it's secure. Whereas if you're a 21 year old, you might go to the, you know, just about COVID okay, doing the basic rules. So we feel that there was a version of that. And it was it was somewhat discussed, of course, inside government that you could push further on a kind of, you know, like scores on the doors, like hygiene ratings, yeah. to have a sort of gold silver standard for, for places which are really, really good on the fact that they had the COVID rules in place. So you know what, that... in government, you never win all the arguments. That's how exactly. it goes, right? 
and, that, and all of these things are obviously a trade-off, and that's the biggest thing yeah. that people who have very certain views on it don't always appreciate. Is there any evidence of what you've seen so far that that lack of confidence, the sort of scaring people into doing one thing, has had a long-term change on the national psyche, that we are more cautious, less sociable? So the short answer is yes. So one of the things in behavior change is that, you know, some kind of shock can jolt you out of a normal pattern. And commuting is a standard example. You know, even short strikes make people take different routes and they often don't go back to the old one. One of the key things you look out for lasting change is that it's normally described, do you make a structural change? Do you do you change it in your life in a deeper way? In this case, that means, did you move house? Right. So Matt, if, you, if you've decided, you know, oh, I'm going to go and buy that house in the country, that's quite high friction to flip back again. Yeah. And it's pretty clear that quite a lot of people, including senior people, made lifestyle changes, which they've sort of locked in. Those are really lasting. I just say one change, which is an interesting one, which I think is a positive one, which goes back to the earlier point, which is that one of the lessons of COVID is for the most part, we found that we could trust our fellow citizens, either because they'll bring us food supplies or that they did seem to follow the rules. And so one really interesting variable, which we've tracked for years, which is, do you trust your fellow citizen? We've had that data measured on and off for about 40 years. It is now at an all-time high for the UK. Wow. And it went up. Some of it was starting to move up even before COVID, but COVID seemed to push it up still further. And our interpretation is because for most people, their experience of COVID was their fellow citizen could be relied on and did follow the rules. And that leaves a lasting tread about how we feel about our fellow citizens, which is broadly a good one to find out, you know what? Generally, they come through for us. Yeah, Matt Jolly on Times Radio. Speaking to David Halpern, the founding director, current president of the behavioural insights team known as the Nudge Unit. We're moving on from COVID. I asked David about some of the other nudge policies the government has pursued, including Rishi Sunak's phase-out of smoking. We would be on our way to ending the biggest cause of preventable death and disease in our country. Does that pass the David Halpern behavioural insight test as a smart policy? <laughs> Well, I have to say, it is a policy which we promoted, certainly internally, our view on smoking. We were big proponents of e-cigarettes and vaping more than a decade ago that we shouldn't get rid of it. We should make it available. That doesn't mean let every kid have an e-cigarette, but for smokers, most effective quit route. So we are supportive of it. It's more than a nudge, you would say, because it's more like a shove. But even most smokers would say, you know, I'd rather my kids didn't do this habit. But it's interesting because when we used to talk about e-cigarettes and that was yeah. a sort of almost medical alternative for people trying to kick the habit of smoking. And now, in a way, the the language of nudge has been used by the vape manufacturers with the bright colours and the funny names and the fruit flavours to nudge it towards children who are not trying to kick the habit of smoking. They're just trying to sell them a product they didn't previously want. So do we need a bit of nudging back in the other direction? That actually some of the sort of talk about plain packaging, you know, regulating on the yeah the flavors and the names and and all that stuff so genuinely of course yes i mean the intent even when the move was to make it in the uk to make sure that vaping was available and relatively easy to get access to it was because the evidence was that it was circa 60 percent more effective than other ways of quitting smoking that didn't mean that you wanted your kids to have it and so the expectation is you'd have decent regulation to stop kids getting it and the truth is, that's pretty clear that wasn't strong enough or wasn't built. It worked pretty well initially. I mean, our, our back of the envelope estimate is having vapes available in the UK has probably saved about a million years of life. Wow. To give you a number. 
Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely huge through those improved quit rates. But yes, you're right. Of course, lots of inventors, inventive manufacturers have been out there figuring out how to make them cool and fun and get our kids to use them. That's a really different situation. We've, we've actually ended up in the really crazy situation, which is that our teenagers can easily get them. And yet your GP can't prescribe one for you, which is totally mad because your most effective persuasive person is your GP saying, Matt, for goodness sake, quit. I'm telling you. We can't put those two together. And our house view for what it's worth is that what would you conclude if you were a medic and you weren't allowed to prescribe these things? You think, well, maybe they're not a good idea, even for medics who are quite highly trained. And so it's actually added to that toxicity. You know, we should be able to get high quality vaping products, which, by the way, ideally reduce the dosage over a period of time, which gradually wean you off those. And we could really kind of finally crack smoking. Okay, just finally then, let's talk about shaping the future. What's the new front in what you're working on now? Is it to do with making us go greener? Is it to do with regulate? I don't know, regulating our lives online? The way that we, you know, is it to do with AI? What's the what's the sort of the new thing that you're you're looking at? Well, all those things. Um, yeah. I mean, hey presto, human behaviour is there in practically everything we do. It's certainly in there on climate change. I mean the. The wonderful work of the Climate Change Commission estimates that nearly two thirds, I think 62% actually, of things we have to do to achieve climate change involve human behavior. A lot of that is technology adoption. You know, are we used to, are we going to get a heat pump? Are we going to get an electric vehicle? So that, of course, is a major front, including, by the way, battling greenwashing and so on. The vast majority of people in Britain and indeed most other countries now say they want to do things, make behavior changes to be better for the environment. They just can't tell you what those things are. There's literally no correlation between what people think will make an impact versus what does. So that's a very particular problem. Other key frontiers, you mentioned it, online living and now AI. So AI is, of course, absolutely fascinating. Um, We've now not only got humans to study, we've got AI to study as well. And it's weaving into our lives in interesting ways. A, A recent beautiful study in The Lancet, you know, where people are given advice from clinicians versus AI. They don't know which which. Hey, they prefer the AI. Wow. No, because this doctor was really thoughtful. They really listened to what I was saying and reflected back. You can kind of imagine relative to a busy doctor. So AI is already there. We're studying the kind of errors also that AI makes. It's often based on human judgment and therefore it replicates some of the classic human errors, as it were, but has you know enormous potential. Are there other frontiers? Yeah. I mean, we think there are new levers to address issues to do with certain kinds of disadvantage and poverty. Um, what called tunneling effects, where when you're in poverty, you end up, you know, not thinking about the future so much and make bad decisions through to market design issues. I mean, which maybe just that last one. One of the ironies about behavioral economics is despite the pile of Nobel Prizes there have now been, a lot of economics in terms of economic policy hasn't really changed that much. And that's a bit puzzling, really. Well, these things saying the foundations are rotten, don't work, or shouldn't it have implications? And we really think it does. So I'll I'll offer you one, we think, really exciting area. So there's this great puzzle about why productivity has been falling across the world, particularly badly in the UK, but not only. And economists talk about this, sorry, horrible phrase, allocative efficiency. It means that basically in everyday life, you can't make a good choice, you know, so things don't end up in the right pile. And there's this interesting puzzle about why do consumers still buy from these firms, which seem to made you know, don't seem to be the best firms and why do people still work in them and invest in them? And one of the arguments is because it's really hard to tell the difference. So you're trying to find, you know, who's a good accountant or who's a good lawyer or is this product a really good green product or will it make me healthy or not? 
it's really hard to tell. So it's called shrouding, right? So it's kind of confusology or whatever you want to call it. So we've done some work to say, imagine you had things like TripAdvisor in other parts of your life, which would make it a bit easier to tell the difference. What's the impact? And in particular, what's the impact on productivity? And we think it roughly doubles productivity growth of the economy if you have sort of versions of TripAdvisor for lots of other things. So that's really exciting. But why does it matter to a political economy? Because if you think, well, actually, we're humans and we could use a little bit of help sometime in making decisions. It's, oh, I still want to make the decision myself, but can you inform me? Well, hey, presto, it makes a very, very big difference. Mm. So we think, you know, if that's enough to go on with, we think we could maybe we could save the planet, make us all a bit thinner, help on poverty, get our economies to go further. We maybe we stop a, a war here or there. That's normally human beings falling out. <laughs> Plenty still to do. for on today's episode don't forget to hit subscribe and if you want to get in touch you can email me matt at time stop radio but for now for me matt Charlie, it's great <laughs>